Hello, and welcome to the Sasha Session, a Team USA podcast. I'm your host, Sasha Cohen, Olympic silver medalist in figure skating. Joining me this week is David Brooks. David is a cultural commentator for the New York Times. He's also a best-selling author exploring topics like morality and his personal struggle to build a meaningful life beyond his career. Well, David, thank you so much for joining me today. I've wanted to speak with you ever since reading The Second Mountain. I found it so relevant to my own search for fulfillment, even though we have such different backgrounds. And I guess I want to start with understanding the catalyst for writing such a personal book. And maybe you can set the stage a little bit about what that time was like for you. Yeah, well, we try to write ourselves into into wholeness. Like when you when you write a book, you're just trying to figure your own crap out, basically. And sometimes you pretend you're writing about something else, and sometimes it's better to be straight up honest. And in this case, I thought it would be better to be straight up honest that I'd gone through this experience, which seemed to resonate with a lot of people. And it was a series of um, first having a career that was way more successful than I ever thought it would be. Uh, and finding it weirdly unsatisfying. You know, I when I was seven, I read a book called Paddington the Bear, and I decided at that moment I wanted to become a writer. And I've written probably every day, except for maybe 200 in all the days since then. Uh, and I succeeded beyond any desserts. I had a bunch of bestsellers. I got to be a columnist in the New York Times. And I remember the first time I had a bestseller, my agent called me to tell me I was on the bestseller list, which should have been a lifelong dream. And I was driving down Sunset Boulevard in L.A., and she told me, and it was like, eh. It was like something external to myself, so it was not satisfying. And in the course of having this career, um, I was committing to a lot of stuff, uh, making commitments to a lot of different professional obligations and stuff. And I came to value time over people and really uh, busyness over relationship. And it got to the point where in about 2013, I realized my marriage had ended. My kids were either off to college or were going to go off to college. Um, and I was living alone in our apartment. And I realized I had a lot of weekday friends who I could talk about work with, but I had no weekend friends. And so it was a sense that I'd sort of misspent my time. So that created a period in the valley and it turned out to be a learning experience. And do you think that's unique to you? I guess these questions come up for me and it's really related to being an athlete and, and so relevant because our first mountain was so intensified, condensed, and short-lived compared to a normal, per, a normal person or a normal career trajectory. And not that many people speak about it, and not that many people who have had the kind of career success that you have speak about it, and it, whether that's because they're not going through it or they have found fulfillment in it. Um, so I guess I'd like to ask you if you find yourself to be somewhat unique in people that have achieved career success to find it hollow. Uh, no, I think I'm normal. My, my, the whole secret to my career is I'm a pretty average person with above average communication skills. And so usually when I'm going through something, a lot of people are going through something. And I will say, having most of my books, most nonfiction books are read by women. And so when I would do a book line for all my previous books, it was 60, 40 women in this book, it was probably 80, 20 men. And guys would come up to me, CEOs of companies or something else, and they would say, hey, can we have a, a personal relationship, a, a phone call? I just need to, I'm going through stuff I have nobody to talk to. And I realized I could become a CEO whisperer and I could make a lot of money as a CEO whisperer. So my impression is 
Uh, a, this is extremely common for people who've enjoyed some career success. B, I've never met anybody when they when you ask them what made you who you are. I've never met anybody who said, you know, I had this great vacation in Hawaii that made me who I am. It's usually some terrible moment. There's some period of struggle and discovery. And then in the case of athletes, you know, I, I'm not an athlete. I've been around some athletes. Very few of them get to decide when their career ends. If you're on a team sport or an individual event, it's either you got cut or you got injured. And very few people get to walk out at, on their own timing. And I can only imagine what it's like to have had this crowded hour of your life, this attention, the intensity of, of competition. And then suddenly, as you say, at a very early age, you think, well, was that the peak of my life? What do I do? And I, I've certainly had members of my own family who were serious athletes and the years after the game ended were tough. And, and there was a struggle to find out what else is there to which I can do, dedicate so much energy and attention. And would you offer different advice to a retiring athlete, you know, whether that was their choice or an injury took them out, who's really spent their whole life defining themselves through their sport to people who have retired or experiencing their own lack of fulfillment with the first mountain outside of the world of sports? Yeah. Well, the first thing I would say, and I've learned that moments of suffering, moments of lostness, either break you or they break you open. Uh, and some people, they get hardened. They, they don't like the pain. So they flee from it. They just cover themselves over with a shell and they never feel again. But a lot of people have what they call a post-traumatic growth and they get broken open. They become more vulnerable. There's a 1950s theologian named Paul Tillich who said moments of suffering and pain are interruptions of your life and they remind you you're not the person you thought you were, that they carve into what you thought was the floor of the basement of your soul and they carve through that and reveal a cavity below. And they carve through the next floor and reveal a cavity below. So you just see depths of yourself you were not aware of before. And you come to realize only spiritual and emotional food will fill those depths. And so that's, I think, how to make something good out of suffering. The second thing that seems relevant to me is going out into the wilderness. And that could be literal, going out to the desert and spending some time alone. Or it could just be metaphorical. But a lot of us athletes or even writers, what we do is in the public eye. And we're often driven by applause. Uh, and what does the golden child do when there's nobody left to applaud? And the, when you're out in the desert or anywhere on your own, the rocks and trees don't care. <laughs> They're not applauding you. <laughs> And so you have to discover your own sense of criteria for how you're going to evaluate your life rather than external validation. I think that's a very good point. And I think so often the default seems to be searching for advice, for mentors, for self-help books. And what you're speaking of is a completely different way of approaching something like this. And I'm curious how you came to this realization. I think there's this Buddhist, yogi community that this is very much part of their lineage and tradition to go out and to find yourself away from society and community. But I think for a lot of Western culture, it, it seems like we bring ourselves to the middle of it and are scrambling to connect and ask questions and 
to model someone else's behavior that we admire. And so I, I'd love to know how you you came to this realization that you needed yeah, I, to be alone and needed to not dance for applause. Yeah, partly I read a book called Backpacking with the Saints, and it's by a guy who was a professor, but he had spiritual experiences while hiking, and he hiked alone. And he came to the realization that, you know, I like myself better when I'm out in the forest. <laughs> like, it, it, he was just a more gentle, uh, peaceful person. And he wasn't scrambling for that acceptance. I remember that book was important uh, for me. But p- part of it, I, I used to teach college, and some of my students were um, uh, were military. They, they would take Army captains, Marine Corps captains, and they would send them back to college to get training for the next level of promotion. And I once had a guy who said, you know, in my first tour of Iraq, I had 18 months where I had the worst commanding officer ever. He only gave me negative feedback. And then he said, and so I had to discover to give myself my own feedback. I had to discover to create my own criteria for when I was successful and when I was not successful. And he said to me, that's the definition of of maturity. When you can honestly evaluate your own self by how you're doing. And that's harder in life, especially than it is in sports, because in sports, the metrics are very clear. (laughs) There's winning and losing. Or there's points. Uh, in life, there, there's no metrics that are clear. And so you have to be able to be humble and look honestly at yourself. And my favorite definition of humility is radical self-honesty from a position of other-centeredness. That is to say, where you see yourself as if from outside and you're completely honest about your gifts. Abraham Lincoln was very sure he was a very impressive man. But he was also very humble because he knew where he was not impressive. And he had identified his core weaknesses. And from from there, you have a criteria for how you're going to do life. And how were you able to pick this apart in your own experience? Because I think we know what's true and right, you know, at a a theoretical level and at a distance, uh, but it's, it's very difficult in a world of social media and constant feedback and judgment and measurement to perhaps not care what people think or to have our own voice be louder than the external voices. And I think you're a very interesting example because you very much have one foot solidly in the real world and you are actively writing every week about current affairs and you know what our world looks like. And yet you've made space for this transformation and spiritual growth that it seems like not that many people publicly speak about or perhaps don't hunger for in the way that that certain people do or have expressed in the way that you have. Yeah, well, partly, um, well, I shouldn't portray myself as someone who's who's beaten the vanity bug. (laughs) Like, I I wrote this book, The Second Mountain About, you know, caring about internal and moral criteria for life, evaluating yourself on a moral basis. And yet, as I was on book tour, I was checking my Amazon rating every hour. <laughs> so I was still hungering for the validation from commercial success. Um, so, so there's that. Um, I haven't beaten it. It's just a daily struggle. But you can displace it. And there are moments when you, you feel breakthrough or moments you find discovery. Uh, I had the advantage, and I think this is probably unlike you, a success 
success in being known to the extent I'm known happened very gradually, like a gentle rain over a period of many, many years. And that's a lot easier to deal with than when it's all at once and when the exposure is global. I mean, that's unimaginable to me. And so it wasn't like, and then the thing I, in journalism, I get to know and cover a lot of big celebrities. And the one thing I've learned about them is their lives are surprisingly normal. Like they may be a global acting superstar or rock star or whatever, but they still wake up, have breakfast, have the same anxieties that everybody else has. And so the the thing, the people who you think have it all solved and are living a life of complete glamour are leading a more or less normal life in a better house than most of us. <laughs> and but the the better house doesn't solve too many of their problems. So bringing it back to. I guess, a wider society-level perspective, it's pretty well-known and it's pretty obvious that we're in Western society, especially in the U.S., that we're taught that achievement and status are, are very important and oftentimes can become the center of our lives. And yet, as you've found, and I think many athletes who've retired or perhaps won gold medals and then realized they have no next goal or reason to do something the next day have found that it's hollow. And, and you've said in the past that it's because it's, it's based on lies. And these lies are that winning or succeeding will be fulfilling and that you can do it alone. And I, you know, I think that was very, very well said. And I'm curious, how, how does this paradigm begin to change? Yeah, I think it begins. I mean, we we do have a very individualistic, self-oriented culture, and we're more so than any other country on earth. Every immigrant group that comes to America is more communal than than native-born Americans. Um, I talk in, I think, in the book, I talk about this book we give kids on college graduation. Oh, the places you'll go by Dr. Seuss, and that's a story of an individual kid with no friends, no family, on a journey towards success. And that uh, they give that book to immigrant kids. And a sociologist told me the immigrant kids hate that book because that's not what their life is like. They've got family to whom they owe responsibility and to whom they get they feel gratitude. They have friends. So it's not an individual journey. But we just have this image of ourselves as, as oh, I'm leading my individual life. And the beauty of sports is, is the commitment to team uh, and the military folks I know who, after they leave the military, they don't miss war, Lord knows, but they miss team. And they're always looking, where can I find that brand of brothers and sisters that I experienced uh, in the service? And so it's finding ways to attach. And we think we want to be free, but our chains actually set us free. There are two definitions of freedom. The first one, which I think is inferior, is absence of restraint. I can do whatever I want. But the better definition of freedom is freedom of capacity. Uh, I have the ability to play the piano because I've chained myself down to practice every day. And you had the ability to do what you did skating because you chained yourself down to that commitment of practicing. And so that's a different sort of freedom. And it comes from actually chaining yourself down and committing. And so I I think like when I was teaching college, I would tell my students, most of you are going to make four big commitments in your course of your life to a probably to a spouse and family to a community to a philosophy or faith and to a vocation and how you make and choose those commitments will determine the fulfillment of your life 
So it's about making the big commitments and then following through on them. And do you think most people are able to, if they find the courage to reorient their life around the second mountain, and maybe just to explain to the audience or people who haven't read the book, the first mountain is this aspiration, this climb towards achieving a career. Um, and, and the second mountain, which I'll, I'll let you describe because you, you, it is your book and <laughs> you do do it so well. Yeah, I mean, the, the first mountain, and I'm not against having a good career. I like having a good career and I, I have the normal ambitions of anybody. But the second mountain is, it, the first mountain is about building up the ego and the identity, establishing your place in the world, making your mark in the world. Uh, then you have a valley which knocks you off the first mountain or you fail or maybe you have a cancer scare or something that gets in the way. And you realize the first mountain, the ideals were inadequate. And so in the second mountain, it's it's often about giving back. It's often about leading a life that's really about deep emotional relationships rather than success. Uh, it's a life about humility and, and orienting toward what kind of person do I want to be? And that, that's not just abstract philosophy. Being a good person is a skill. <laughs> it's like noticing who in the room is not being noticed and having the skill to make them feel included. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's a life oriented around more, much more relational things. And do you think that's a, a choice or a disposition that, that some people are born with or, or others aren't? Like some people kind of go into service roles of service, and some people go into very selfish, egocentric careers? Or have you seen someone that's very self-centered really have that shift? Or, or is, that, is that something that can be learned and, and change over one's life? Yeah, I, I totally um, see um, <laughs> that shift. Uh, some people are just born into service, I, and it, often it grows out of a point of personal pain. Uh, I have a friend uh, named Sarah Hemminger, it was actually a nice dancer for a while. Um, and she uh, she w- was lonely as a child. She grew up in Indiana, and her, her family was shunned for very terrible reasons by her town. And so she understood loneliness. And she was getting a PhD in neuroscience at Johns Hopkins, very successful trajectory. She drives by, she's on a bus, drives by a high school in Baltimore, sees a bunch of kids just sitting by the side of the school looking very lonely. And she thinks, I know exactly how they feel. And ending loneliness is like the mission of her life. So she creates an organization called Thread, which surrounds high school kids in Baltimore with four volunteers and then 12 uh, collaborators and grandparents, this whole extended network of people to help these kids. And she has a whole ethos in her organization, which is like show all the way up. When you're in a meeting, be fully present with the people there. Call a thing a thing. Be completely honest with the people you're dealing with. Treat relationships as wealth. And so she's got this whole ethos that she lives by and her organization lives by. And I think that grew out of some pain and her attempt to deal with that pain. So a lot of people are like that. But I certainly know, and in the course of the last couple of years, I met a guy, for example, who decided he was going to retire a wealthy man by age 40. He started a... a, um, medical marijuana business, and then the solar business. And five days before his 40th birthday, he retired. He'd done it. And then he took some of his money and he went back to his high school and he gave every kid in his graduating class a college scholarship. And now he dedicates himself to 
you know, giving it away in intelligent ways and being super active in his community. And I see this experience over and over again. And I notice, especially in people over 70, it's like you turn 15 and horniness turns on. You turn 70 and generativity turns on. Somehow people who are over 70, they want to give back. They're thinking about their legacy. And the ambition that comes with wanting to give back can be just as strong and powerful as the ambition to whatever, to make that first 200 million. That makes a lot of sense. And I think a lot of the themes that you touch upon take time to develop and unfold. And I guess the space to listen to yourself and allow for those experiences and see how they, how they shape you. So I think having a book like The Second Mountain and having someone like you who continues to be in the spotlight kind of espouse those values and kind of give permission is helpful. Did you, did you find yeah. that you received permission internally or you had a role model or someone else that was very public about an experience like this that was very vulnerable and open about the process, the sense of misdirection. Uh, that's not always easy to share with the whole world when that's not what you've built your bread and butter on. That's not what the world knows you for. And so I'm, I guess I'm curious where your sense of permission evolved from. I think it was being, well, I guess, you know, I went through this hard time in 2013. And, and the hardest part of, about the book was sharing some of the realities of that hard time. Like I, in the book, I talk about if you'd gone to my apartment where I was living alone in this apartment, uh, and since I, all I was doing like was working as a way to try to solve all my problems, I thought if I worked 20 hours a day, that would solve all my problems. Um, and so if you went to the my kitchen and you went to the drawer where there should have been silverware, there was just post-it notes because I wasn't eating at home. I was just going, I would go to the restaurant across the street or get takeout. And if you went to where there should have been plates, there was just stationery. And so that admission of what it was like in those days, when I, I remember I would, at night, I would listen to a lot of Snow Patrol, like sad Irish music and uh, like really sad videos on YouTube, like the dream I dreamed from Les Mis with Anne Hathaway. <laughs> like I just wallowing in sad music. <laughs> um, and so it was hard for me. I'm a political pundit. I'm not, I usually talk about politics to go out and talk that way. And I, sometimes I felt I was oversharing and, and I felt when you share and it's not received in the right way, it can feel like they're trampling on you. But I would say 90% of the time people appreciated the vulnerability and especially guys, I, you know, guys need a, a little permission to be vulnerable in public. I, I very much agree with that. I think this segues really well into this understanding or thinking about the eulogy versus the resume, which is a theme in your, your writing, and that we are so focused on the resume and what to put on it and how it's viewed and how we'll be judged and how we stack up that we don't think about our lives in their entirety and think about it, what it'll be like at the end of our lives looking back. Why is it that we're so out of touch with the eulogy values and theoretically what we think are more important and of more value and that we just kind of seem to brush them off? Yeah, I think we we built a lot of competitive systems and I'm not against them all, but they have their downsides. Like to get into college, you have to perform in a certain way. 
in some ways, the sports world is a metaphor for our, our lives because it's it's competitive performance. And when I think a lot of us see ourselves in the sports world, even though we're not athletes, because we see ourselves practicing really hard, trying to perform, meet a standard, and trying to win. Uh, and I, you know, there's a rabbi, Joseph Soloveitchik, who said there are two different sides of each person. The majestic side, which is the side that wants to win, and he was not against that. But then there's the humble side, the side that wants us just to tend our garden and, and uh, be good. And the, our culture is super articulate on how to win and whatever you're doing, whether it's dentistry or sports or, or, or even teaching. We're super inarticulate about, hey, what's it like to be a good person? Like, I think other cultures are more articulate about that. Even the words, words like sin and grace and redemption, those words are a little mysterious. And when I was teaching in an Ivy League school, my students knew, when I would say, you are good people, you're just, you don't have the moral vocabulary. Nobody's giving you the moral vocabulary. And my students totally got that. And so a lot of what we did in the class was read, say, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. So when somebody said you should live a life of meaning, that wasn't just a word. That was They had an example of what that looks like. And so we... We used to have, we, in theory, we learned it in religious communities, but a lot of people are not in religious communities anymore. And frankly, a lot of people in religious communities just want to talk politics from the pulpit. <laughs> and so, like, I always want to tell them, get out of my business, do your job, <laughs> do moral formation. Um, but somehow we, we, it's hard, and so we've drifted away from that. And... Expanding upon, I guess, religious values and searching for something there and this moral development, it seems like our community, my generation, those younger than, than myself are really searching for something in the realm of spirituality. Why am I here? What am I doing? What is a meaningful life? And you, you speak a lot about spirituality and make, in how you speak about being alone and listening to that that inner voice, I'd be curious to understand how you define spirituality and kind of how that shows up in your own life. Yeah, well, um, for me, it's, um, first of all, for my, on, on the generations, I'm really struck, I've been teaching college all this time, off and on. And 10 years ago, my students were really, were quite interested, or 15, in career. <laughs> they wanted They wanted a good career. And now students on college are filled with much more spiritual and moral yearning. And some of it shows up in social justice, but some of it shows up in other ways. And I think it's, it's very possible, and I certainly know a lot of people who are spiritual without, religious, without religion, but I don't know how I could do that. And so I need the Bible, because the Bible is a container of stories that shape my moral imagination. Like, I, really, the Exodus story is a very central story to my life. It's a, a story of a people becoming a people and fleeing oppression and, and trying to become a coherent group. And you see how a people is formed. You see how Moses, a very humble man, still has the guts to argue with God. I mean, you, all these stories people my spiritual life. And I, I wouldn't have trouble. I would have trouble divorcing them from that. And then, for me, the stories that I grew up with, at some point, became real. Uh, they weren't just stories that provided me wisdom literature. 
they became, somebody once said, the ground of being, that the world is enchanted and those stories are things we live out eternally. Uh, and so then I came to see those biblical stories not just as, as good books, but as some representation of the elemental reality of the love in the universe. And so to me, spirituality is, is tied up in a book. <laughs> Thank you for your answer. I think understanding how everyone comes to spirituality is, is really interesting and gives context. I've been on this journey after leaving my first mountain and not having it be quite the first mountain that I wanted it to be. I, I've spent a lot of time in the valley of exploration, transition, uncertainty. And with that, this slow unraveling of an identity that was two decades in the making. And that identity was a figure skater. And it was a figure skater at the cost of everything else. And so I didn't really know who I was. And 14, 15 years later, I'm still piecing that together through new experiences and, I guess, being a tadpole in the ocean and figuring out what a world outside of sports and outside of an arena looks like. And so meaning is something that's core to that. And I've found communi community and a search for spirituality and connection to be very important. And I didn't grow up at all religious, um, but I think I have found that the first mountain, whatever it could have been, wouldn't have given me what I was looking for. And I think it's very hard if your first mountain didn't check the box that you, that you set out to accomplish, then you, part of you can assume that it's because you failed to completely climb to the pinnacle of the first mountain, and therein lies the problem, rather than perhaps it was the wrong mountain. So I find your spirituality and how you found it, of course, to be very interesting. But I'd be curious to get your perspective on maybe people like me in or out of sport that feel like they didn't really fully resolve their first mountain. Can I ask you a question? Because you said your first mountain wasn't what you hoped it to be from the outside. It looked like you were just unbelievably successful at it. It didn't feel like that from the inside. I think, as you know, in sports, it's about winning and it's about gold. And so if you, if you go to an Olympic Games or a world championship and that's not what you come back with, but that's perhaps what the potential was or the expectation, then that's something you live with. And especially if it was an event where you didn't give your best performance, there's constant questioning. And you look back at every decision you made in training over the last year and the last five years. And what could you have tweaked or done differently physically or mentally? Or was it random? And sometimes, you know, I find myself thinking with my mental fortitude and what I endured, was I able to push my body further than it may have been capable of? Or was my mind not strong enough and my body was capable? And so I think there are all these questions, especially in sports that, you know, fractions of a second change outcomes. Yeah. 
I, well, you probably know the research that people who win bronze medals are happier than people who win silver medals. Uh, and the, um, and I, I got the, fourth and second, so I missed a podium, so I had that. <laughs> you know, I, I've, but I've read that study, yes. Yeah. Um, well, well I, I, you have your experience. I, for me, to, to I think you're still the, final, the last American woman to medal in figure skating in the Olympics, and that's just astonishing achievement. But I will say, even it would be interesting to ask people who won gold. But in the book, I, I describe um, Leo Tolstoy. So in my work writing, he's like he's Michael Jordan and LeBron James put together. Uh, he's one of the greatest writers of all time, and he knew it. He knew how good he was, and the world knew it. He, he everybody knew how great he was. And after he wrote War and Peace, Anna Karenina, two of the greatest books ever, he went through a deep personal crisis and, and realized that what had been missing was a commitment to utter truth. And he went to watch a, a beheading, a death penalty in France. And he said, when I heard the head fall into the basket, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, no matter what anybody said, that this was wrong. And if there was absolute wrong, there must be absolute right. And I had not been dedicating myself to the discovery of absolute right. And so he went through this crisis where he had to hide guns from himself because he thought he would kill himself because he didn't know what was true. Uh, and it took him a long time to figure it out, but eventually he, um, he, he became a very different kind of writer, a much simpler much more committed to the soil, much more committed to a life um, of, of really seeking pure goodness. And some people just need to, see, need to experience almost pure self-sacrifice, sac not just self-sacrifice, but sacrificial love. And he tried, and not always successfully, but to experience sacrificial love toward the peasants on his estate, toward the people around him, and... It was, it was a life dedicated to that. And one, one of my heroes is a woman named Dorothy Day, who she had a, um, well, she gave birth. And on the, when she gave birth, she felt this overwhelming flood of love and joy at the birth of her daughter. And she said, I needed somebody to thank for this. And that joy led her to want to thank somebody. And she figured it must be God. And so she became a Catholic, and then she became a Catholic social work, worker, not only serving the poor, but trying to emulate Jesus by living within the poor. And so she spent the next 60 years of her life living in homeless shelters, serving the poor. And it was a life of difficulty, but uh, I think it was, it was a life of, of real joy. And, and people, if you read about her, she's an astounding person, astoundingly giving at all times. So she's an example, and Tolstoy is another example of people who went through their valleys and, and found, stop. It, and I certainly haven't succeeded at this, but the problem of what do I do with my life goes away when you've found what you want to do with your life, because you're not thinking about that question anymore. You're just doing what you should be doing. I think it's beautiful to look at these moments. There's so many moments that we perhaps miss as signs or opportunities for transformation and for growth if we're caught up thinking we haven't done something we were expected to do or 
are living in an ego-driven reality. So I think being open to these moments and these events and these chances to change is incredibly important. But I guess to just dig a little bit deeper, have you found since this book and in feedback that you've received that some people feel like they need to go back and uh, reclimb their first mountain or feel like they it's a stone left unturned or is kind of the whole point of the first mountain that no matter which way you go up and over it, that it never feels, it never gives you the feeling that you're looking for. Yeah. I've, I've honestly, well, I, I've known people who failed at something and they had to go back and succeed at it. And they had the ability, like somebody I know did not succeed his first army stint and he had to go, he couldn't quite move on until he went back and did that again until he had that sense of accomplishment, a sense of unfinished business. But if Leo Tolstoy doesn't feel satisfied, I bet maybe Michael Phelps doesn't feel satisfied. <laughs> like I've, I've early in my life, I had two mentors who really had changed history. They really were very, um, very uh, impactful. And I asked each of them, is there now a sense of peace that I've done what I could do and the desire to change and the desire to succeed and the desire to have more impact goes away. And they neither understood the question. They were never going to have tranquility. That It was just not in their nature to have tranquility. <laughs> they were always pushing on to the next thing and they needed that kind of motion. And I think that's the right way to live. The question is, are you living for, what are you living for? And I would hope in your case, like, I have a friend who hires a lot of people, and when he hires people for his, his organization, he looks for performance in their background. Like, he wants to know they were in theater, they were in sports, they were in dance. They had to face the pressure of performance. And so you obviously did that in a big way. And then a lot of the military men and women I know, I say, what did you get out of serving in the military? And they said, I know if somebody punches me in the nose, I can take it. And that's a, just a, I don't have anything to prove. I, I have a rock of stability that I know I can take it. And I assume where, however you direct your energies, you perfected those things in your first mountain and that these are resources to carry to what you're doing in the rest of your life. And, and I do think that's an, an advantage for some kinds of, of people who are career oriented first, they're developing skills which they can then use uh, later on. I think that's very well put. And I think the first time this came to light for me was in working on the documentary, The Weight of Gold, and speaking to Michael Phelps and many, many other Olympians, Sean White, Apollo Ono, took part in this documentary. And it was really talking about the sinking depression that happens after leaving an Olympic career and this lack of purpose, lack of meaning and loss of identity. Uh, so I think that's a big thing that gets thrown in to all the other issues of losing meaning for an athlete because you've also built the first 20, 30 years of your identity around it. And I guess I'd, I'd love to ask you how you feel like your identity was constructed and how fluid has it been? Um, because I think for an athlete who spent so so much time as one thing to the world, 
it can be difficult to know yourself and have the world know you as something more or other than uh, the sport that defined you. Yeah, I, I'm lucky in that I went into a line of work that I can do when I'm 80. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I, I, but I, writer has been my identity. Writer, writer is my identity. And I, I tell the story in high school, I wanted to date this woman named Bernice, and she didn't want to date me. She wanted to date some other guy. And I remember thinking, what is she thinking? I write way better than that guy. So that, that was the core of my value system. Um, and I haven't had to, um, I really haven't had to reinvent. I mean, if you have setbacks, you have failures and things like that. But uh, the identity is still sort of the same. I th- but when I think about identity, what is identity? It could be a job. But really, for most of us, it's a story that we tell about our lives and it's a story with a certain shape. And for some people, uh, and for a lot of Americans, the, the identity shape is redemption. I was this, this bad thing happened, and now I'm that. And that doesn't mean you have to do the same thing all life to have an identity. It means you're part of the same story and you can tell a coherent story about yourself. And that story, often you have the same traits throughout the whole story, but there was a period of, of struggle and recovery. And so to me, the, 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 the coherence of your story really matters, <laughs> but not the coherence of the certain job you happen to have at that moment. I, I think that's very true. Well, as we're drawing to a close, I have two last things I want to touch on. And one I think is a source of a lot of your purpose these days, and it's the Weave Project that you founded. And I was hoping you could tell me a little bit about that and what brought you to it. Yeah, well, I found that the people I really admire are just fantastic relationships. And that's so needed now because in America, we have so much social isolation, we have so much fragmentation, we have polarization, we have hatred. 36% of people say they're lonely often or almost all the time. You get opioid addictions, teenage suicide rate is up by 50%. So we're, we're just sort of in a social crisis. And weavers are people who solve it at the local level with community, by building communities. I mentioned Sarah Heminger in Baltimore. She's an example. There's a woman named Aisha Butler who, was in, who lives in Chicago, and she was in a dangerous neighborhood called Englewood. Uh, and she was going to move out because it was dangerous. But... As she was about to move out, she looked across the street and saw a little girl in a pink dress playing with broken bottles in an empty lot. And she turns to her husband and says, we're not moving out. We're not going to be just another family who abandoned this. And so she started volunteering, and now she runs the big community organization there. And if you go to Englewood, there are T-shirts in the stores that say, proud son of Englewood, proud daughter of Englewood. And so she's creating this culture and when I meet weavers, and you go to any town, we were in, before COVID, we were in McCook, Nebraska, Wilkesboro, North Carolina. Just before COVID, I was in Watts and Compton and South Central LA. And these people have planted themselves down in a place. They have moral certitude. They know why they were put on this earth. And they, they treat relationships like wealth. And it's so uplifting to be around them. And to me, if we're going to fix society, it's going to come from bottom-up weavers like this. And so what my organization does is we tell their stories, we try to get them in front of groups to inspire other people to do some kind of work, we try to get them money to help them do their work, and we connect them with each other. And it's 
been meaningful to me because I get to serve these people. I've been blessed with certain platforms and now I can shine attention on people who are really the best people I meet. Uh, and so that, that part has just felt wonderful and it's a thrill to be around them because, uh, they really, and there was a guy in Chicago, Charles Perry is his name, served time. And now he just goes to gang members and gives them his cell phone. Say, call me, I'll get you out of this. And so his, he's, this is a 24 seven thing for him. And yet he sees lives turning around by based on what he does and how he mentors these young men. Uh, and so I, the, that, if you want peace, <laughs> it's in the, the muck of, of that kind of community where kids are calling you 24 seven rather than getting shot. Like then, you know, you've made a difference when that's what you're doing. Oh, it sounds like it's very important work that you're doing and very much needed. I, I've, I've followed that through the Aspen Institute and you're writing about it. And I, I think it's, it's so important. I want to come to our last question, which I, I ask all the guests and it, is what would your Olympic or Paralympic moment in life be? And this is just any type of huge moment that has been looming in the horizon, something that you've been looking forward to or thinking about or just is transcendent in some way. Hmm, that's a good question. Uh, before I answer, I just want to say what a pleasure it is to meet you. Um, I agreed to do this because I've admired the way, not only when you were on the ice, but the way you've lived your life since. It's been a life of fullness, and I um, really appreciate that. And even the hunger you've shown in our conversation, I really appreciate the, the Thank you. That, that means a lot, especially coming from you and someone that's so thoughtful and done so much, so much work, um, personal work. So that means a lot. Thank you. You know, I, my life doesn't have, um, I, I, I do a lot of public speaking, so my life has a performative element to it. <laughs> and uh, when I speak, I try to do what public speakers should do is lay themselves out on the crowd, be vulnerable to the crowd, trust that the crowd will hold you. And there are moments when the crowd holds you. And they laugh at your jokes, and, but they, and they cry when you want them to, and they carry you. And they're always, like you see these faces, maybe 20% of the faces are highly reactive. And you see them beaming at you. And so there are moments when you get that sense, to me that's my version of sports, <laughs> is those moments of connection in, in, with a crowd. But I, I think the thing you work for as a writer is understanding. You're driven by this need to try to understand. Like the, my next book is on the art of seeing others deeply and being deeply seen. So many people feel unheard and unseen. So it struck me that the most important skill in any organization or family or, or country is the art of seeing others deeply. And what is that skill? And so I'm, I'm now obsessively thinking about this and reading about this and talking to neuroscientists and psychologists and biographers and actors. All the people are really good at knowing another person and so I just get powerfully motivated to try to understand something and then write it in a book. <laughs> that, that's, that to me is like the recurring challenge of my professional life. I have my private life too, but that's the recurring challenge of my professional life. Well, I'm glad it's your challenge because we all benefit from these deep dives that you do. And I'm very much looking forward to reading that next book. I think 
are a lot of tangents in there that have threads I've explored. So I think the world will greatly benefit from that. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure being with you, a real pleasure. I, I really appreciate the interest and hope someday to see you in person. Please subscribe to Sasha Sessions wherever you get your podcasts. You can find new episodes every Monday. Produced by Bigfoot Music and Sound in New York City.